Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, text us, 2057, email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. The people that I love and admire the most are the people that make things and fix things. I've never been a fan of celebrities, politicians, bureaucrats, artists, sports people, but people that do stuff. That's who I admire and I wonder at. And my dad was a truck driver. And I used to go with him as a little boy to all these great businesses and factories. And I used to marvel at how good people could be at doing a job. And my father taught me just by his actions that there was never a lowly job. There was just a job done well. And the skill and expertise with which people go about their business, making things and fixing things, is a treasure to behold. And it seems to be me in the modern world that we admire now useless people, you know, your TikTok influencers or your Kardashians who produce nothing. They don't spin, they don't weave, they don't grow. And part of, I guess, the shift in the world. And amongst those that produce and fix things, the ones that stand out to me are the people that make a business of it and employ people and provide for people a meaning in their life, an income, a house through that income, a family through that income. They are the heroes of the world, and they allow us to eat and to be clothed and to have a house. And we've got one such hero along this morning, and it's called, he is called Peter Chatterton. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Rodney. Now, your business I know nothing about, which is what I'm going to love, because you've got a business that's called Design Spun Limited, and online it's skeins.com, and you sell stuff, which we're going to get into, and it's skeins, S-K-E-I-N-Z.com. And so you're in business, but I want to ask you, because when I heard you say good morning, you don't come for around here, Peter. <laughs> I, I introduced myself. Uh, I could talk, I could tell you uh, a number of instances, particularly in our early days in New Zealand in 1974. I, uh, I refer to myself as a pom cake. A pom cake. <laughs> pom key. Pom key. Pom key. Oh, pom key. Kiwi, kiwi and a pom. Um, where, did, where were you born? Um, well, the, the, what I always re- reply to that is, uh, Rodney, check your wallet. I was born in Liverpool. Liverpool. Um, Liverpoolians ah. <laughs> are famous for being uh, uh, wallet lifters. <laughs> and, and rock stars. And rock stars. The Beatles. My dad was born probably three um, um, Terrace Street houses away from where the Beatles played at the cavern. But anyway, that's my... You know who I love? Who's my favourite Liverpoolian? Yes. Silla Black. Oh, Silla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Silla Black. Yeah, yeah. I drive everyone that I know mad playing Silla Black. She, to me, was because 
was going, I was going on in the intro about celebrities because she was so, to me, down to earth. Down to earth, yes, absolutely. She was so lovely. And I loved her accent and her voice, which I can hear in you. Yeah, or vaguely, because I, I, uh, my family or my parents, my dad was in the uh, wine and spirit trade and brewing, so he took two little boys to Halifax in Yorkshire. So I used to have a right broad Yorkshire accent, you know, but that's kind of faded with the Kiwiism. Um, but, uh, yes, so Liverpool originally into Halifax, heart of the textile trade, as it used to be known, uh, for the spinning, uh, which is what we are. We're a, a, a spinning mill. Um, and uh, in 1974, my new wife and I, well, I got a job in Danavirk under the then Labour government regional development scheme and development to, to build a spinning mill, a carpet spinning mill in Danavirk, little old Danavirk. Well, tell me first of all, Peter, you've skipped the bit because well, I got that you were born. Yes. I got that you shift to Halifax. Yes. And Halifax is the heart of the mill industry. Yes. And then suddenly you're setting up a factory in Denevirk. How did you oh. learn? How did you learn this craft? Uh, so I started work. Uh, I, I I semi enjoyed school. Did two languages, French and German, and I love languages. And um, I, I I achieved two GCEs, which is a General Certificate of Education, which used to exist, so still does, I think. So, but basically a failure. Not enough to go to university. Well, you were lucky. Uh, yes, exactly. I which wanted a job, and and I uh, sat at home for a, a, a few days, and uh, then started walking the streets of Halifax, and uh, found a job in a pattern makers, which I'd never, I would not have a clue. I was sixteen years of age, so what do you know at sixteen? Not a lot. I know. So I knocked on doors. I got a job in a pattern makers. I learned what that was, and that was fascinating. But What's a pattern maker? Obviously, they make patterns, but what yeah, sort of patterns? No, they don't make patterns. They copy oh. patterns. A pattern maker, the pattern maker I worked for, which I learned, of course, uh, was a manufacturer who made all those rosettes that you use in the uh, for any awards or gold standard, or number one, first, oh. second, third. Politicians. Uh, well, not quite. No. <laughs> and we use lots of gold leaf to em- yeah. embed onto those rosettes and things. I only stayed there six months and I thought, eh, this is a bit um, not me. And uh, I walked into a mill um, a little further away from them um, and uh, they gave me a job and I started training as a colour matcher in a dye house. In a, are you ready for this? <laughs> in a in Yorkshireism, in a slubbing and top dyer's mill. <laughs> so it was a massive dye house. And I won't bore you with what a slubbing is and things like that. But that's where I started. And they sent me to Textile College, uh, which was night school, two nights a week and Saturday mornings. Um, and uh, I did that for probably four years. No, less than four years, because I'm going to tell you a story. There's a the, the the historically there was a, a an environment in in England or a system let's call it when I started when I started at Fletcher's as a trainee colour matcher I learnt about a thing called laking again Yorkshireism laking 
And I said, what's laking, guys? What does that mean? And the, the men, because I was a boy, said, ah, laking, lad, is when you haven't got any work. So that when I joined that mill, that dye house, it was busy for three days a week, didn't have enough work for the other two days. So all the staff went down to the Labour Department and were paid for two days' work by the government. My goodness. So that's a that's a uh, an interesting um, observation, isn't it? And then and you and you sound you sound just like John Lennon. Really? No. Yeah. Oh, you do. I wish you were right, though. I, I reckon you could probably sing. You could probably <laughs> sing like, but you do. You to me to my ear. Yeah. Um, but just tell us about this mill business because in Halifax and in England, this industry goes back centuries, right? It certainly does. I mean, to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they were making. Uh, um, uh, wool and spinning it and dyeing it. Yes. Um, if you you won't know, I'm sure, I'm, I'm guessing you won't know about this. Uh, Halifax being one of the centres, um, they uh, the people in their origins, the crofters, um, who have their little farm or have three sheep um, and they've made a loom and they shear the sheep, then they hand spin the wool and then they diet with plants, things, no chemicals in those days. No. But they're always, they're, Yorkshire has some of the most beautiful soft water. You, It's difficult to operate textile manufacturing in places that have got hard water, too much alkali. Um, so the soft water, and then, and that whole, that, um, that place that was built in, it's called the Peace Hall, P-I-E-C-E. -E. That's where the growers from all the different valleys and hills and down in etc. took their piece of cloth once a week or once a fortnight, whenever, to sell it to get some money. And that's still there today, but it's not operating as a Peace Hall, but the actual building's still there. In fact, my wife and I, we were there in oh July last year. Uh, seeing family uh, three years later than it should have been because of COVID, mm -hmm. but uh, it's there. And and when I was a when I was a boy before I even started work, you'd go walk to school, you'd you'd go out to the playing fields, and you'd see mills all over the place. You see the mill chimneys like sticking up all over the place, and um, and that was that was the soft water. It was basically one of the. Uh, key factors in it developing in those regions. And if I took you to the top of Salter Hebel Hill at south of Halifax, there was a pub on the corner, and that pub was the pub where the first Luddite meeting took place. Oh, wow. Do you remember the Luddites? Yes. Well, I don't remember them, but well, I know sorry, the story. Was, sorry, yeah. the story, well, you know the story. I'm not as old as you. Auntie, uh, uh, when I arrived in New Zealand, I was the youngest, now I'm the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, so there you go. That so it's an extraordinary craft, and so you're working away there at sixteen, going to night school and on Saturday mornings, and you're learning. You said was it dye matching? Oh, no, color matching. Uh, no, I I I I I was a color matcher. So that's yeah. a person that, that makes tries to 
the, the customer gives you a standard, a color they want. Yeah. It's your job to make that standard, to match it and produce it. Okay. So that's what I was doing. But I, about what I did at college, at textile college, I did everything from A to Z of the processing of fiber from the animal through to the finished product. So and this was in the 60s? That was in the 60s, yes. That was at Halifax Technical College. And um, and by 1960, that was 66. By 1969, I had a couple of qualifications. I changed jobs um, and just moved on with that. So I went from being in a dye house. i got to tell you a story why I did that, by the way, the dye house. That's staggering. Um, I went into a man, into a yarn manufacturing plant, one of the biggest in Yorkshire. Tell us the story. You can't leave me hanging. Well, that story was, can I do this? Um, his name was Mr. I'll never forget it. I would have been 18. And one of the, one of the, one of the guys at Fletcher's Dye House said, uh, Peter, Mr. Patchy wants to see you. He's the boss. <gasps> What's the boss want to see me for? What have I done wrong? So we, I go upstairs, and there's three men there already stood there, three, and I joined them, and I looked to these guys, and they're all just stood there. And, and they're all men, they're probably 30, and I'm 18 or 40. And they didn't say anything. And I, so I said to them, um, excuse me, uh, uh, what have we done wrong? And they all just shrugged their shoulders. His door opened. He stood there with his they, – they all wore those white – I call them ice cream cellar jackets, yes. those white with the pockets. They walk around the mill like they own the place with the pockets, with their hands in the pockets. Anyway, and we all go in and we stand there just like that, and he just looks at us all. He says, right, you all know why you're here. And they said, nothing, these three guys. And I said, sorry, Mr. Patchy, what have we done wrong? He said verbatim, Nothing. You haven't got a job anymore. Here's your pay packet. Get out. Whoa. Fact. The, the world's changed a bit since then. Yeah. <laughs> so I, and I've recounted that story many times. My God. So so I, I left and uh, those guys left and you got your gear and you went off and found a new job. But now, can I say, in the 60s, when I was knocking doors looking for a job, the choice of jobs, the number of vacancies was massive. Mm. So you had a lot of choice. Um, and the same applied in, in New Zealand. So I, I, after that experience, I got this job in, this, in a spinning plant at Crossless, the biggest carpet manufacturer in the world back in its day. Employed something like five thousand three hundred people. Oh my goodness! Something like that. And the and the uh, the Crossley's mill, big mill. I was in a in a, in a one of the smaller satellite mills. The, they they had bicycles to get around the place. It was acres and acres. It was everything. It was just incredible. Um, but anyway, so late sixties. I don't know. Uh, by then, I was working in Leeds, and I'm in Halifax. So it was a bus a run down Horton Street for half a mile to get the train and a train to Leeds and then do the same again, coming home and running here and running there. And, of course, if you live in Yorkshire, it rains a lot. Hmm. So you, you, you sometimes you went to work soaking wet just like you did to school and then you dry out and you run home and you get wet again. Anyway, that's the by the by. And I started thinking about things and um, 
I always enjoyed geography and history at school, as well as art anyway, and geography. So I learned a lot, or we were taught a lot, let's say that way, about the Commonwealth, but Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and a variety of those other Commonwealth countries. And um, I uh, had this idea of, instead of getting wet and walking everywhere, no cars, it was all public transport. Well, there were cars, obviously, but not for young people like us or like me. Um, I started thinking about emigrating. Well, where, 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 could, where would one like to go? And um, I picked Australia and New Zealand. Good for you. Well, thank two. you. And by then it was 1970, just uh, mid-1970 by then. It was a lengthy process to go through. So what happened then, I, um, I wrote to New Zealand House in the Haymarket in London, and I wrote to Australia House in that same locality. And um, uh, the first reply came back explaining what I did and what I was and how old I was and everything. Well, and and I, I got a reply back, <clears throat> and there was a, an A4 sheet of paper, probably full full the first side and a third down on the second side, of possible job opportunities in New Zealand. And I looked at them all and didn't know any. Went to the internet. No, don't be silly. There's no internet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the easy times of life. So how do you find out of those things? You go to the reference libraries. Yeah. So off we go to the reference library and I try to find this and that and the other and everything. And so I knew what I'd learned, if you like, of the parts, because the textile industry is quite vast in its mm. capabilities and its finished goods and everything else. And I knew where I was. I fitted. And uh, I wrote to five different businesses, companies or vacancies in New Zealand and then just sat there. And I didn't hear from the Australian house for weeks after that, till, until weeks after that. But uh, that's a by the by. And I wrote to these five. I got four replies. One was with Ron's Wool Research Organization in Lincoln, just outside Christchurch. Uh, I, I'm not a boffin. They're, they're, they're the scientists of the, you know, yes. research. And I like to. Yes do make things and see things happen anyway and i got a reply from um, the others and uh, i pursued two of them and uh, i was interviewed in a pub in yorkshire with my with my girlfriend in must have been late 1970 early 71 by the man who was tasked with building this mill in Danavirk under the regional development. And surprisingly enough, he was a POM, but he'd lived in New Zealand for 15 years or something. Uh, Bob King was his name. And um, he was, I don't know, I won't go into his uh, caricature. Um, and he interviewed us in this pub and he said, right, well, I'll go back to New Zealand. We'll see where you are and we'll see if we can set the... Uh, Set the set the immigration progress in in train, which they did. So uh, we were interviewed by the New Zealand High Commission uh, to see if we we're fit and truthful people, um, and and weren't communist and things like that. <laughs> I did. Uh, well, we were told by the the guy at the High Commission, which was comical really or interesting. I remember he told us 
keep it straight. And you tell us what you're about. No jokes. And that, that communist thing, because he said, I interviewed somebody a year ago, something like that. And he said, so what are your political beliefs? So I'm a communist. And they said, no, I'm only joking. Oh, that's it. Yeah. He was gone. Yeah. So anyway, it took, it took longer. longer well, to- and to be fair, we were very wary because we were having, you recall, a lot of our union movement was headed up by POMs yes. who were communists. Yes, yes. And there was, there was a lot of anxiety because suddenly strikes started occurring and you'd have these, and that's caused a lot of upset with English immigration English immigrants. Yeah. Uh, they were duty comms. Yeah, well, there was the, and I used to remember the names, but I can't anymore. No. There was the boy that was on the Wellington Wharf. He was an yeah. out-and-out communist. There was the dairy, the dairy man, the Dairy Workers Union. Um, I remember I was in Danneberg then. I can't remember his name. He had a full tanker load of milk dropped on his front lawn. Yes. From the, you remember? Oh, I, can, I remember it very well. And, and you, you, yeah. So you didn't want, we didn't want any more commie, commie, commies. Tell yeah. me. So you got through that. And yeah. then, and then you had this girlfriend in tow. Yeah. And then, um, so I had the girlfriend in tow, and uh, we're in the pub. We used to, we, we, you know, what English pubs are like. It's your local, yes. you know, everybody. Um, and um, I'll tell you this quickly Halifax, my father's in the booze trade. Halifax had the most number of pubs in a square mile in the whole of England. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Anyway, um, and by then, I'm, I'm, t- I'm thinking of my times because we arrived 74. It, we must have been accepted as uh, 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 um, uh, acceptable, possible. Uh, yes, non-communist. Uh, yes, not, you know that. And um, by then it was, it was must have been early 74. I was going to say, it was a long process to go mm. through that. It wasn't a, well, yes, see you there, here's your stamp, you're on your way. Mm. So it was quite a long process. And uh, eventually... Um, and there was not a lot of rush because that's what Bob King said, because that was the Labour government with Warren Freer as the Regional Development Minister. Um, and um, so it was backed by the government to be built in Danneberg. And that didn't start. The building started to be uh, put up mid-73 before we arrived. But the machinery had to be manufactured in Europe um, and um, didn't arrive till probably the January, January 74. Mm-hmm. And we arrived December, oh, Jan- January 74. No, rubbish. December 74, I'm missing a, missing a year out there. And um, so uh, we arrived um, on, uh, we got married. Yeah, I, 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 I told you I waffled. Uh, we were sat in the pub in the horse and jock strap. It's called the horse and jock. We all, <laughs> no, we all called it the horse and jock strap. Well, of course you would, wouldn't you? We, yeah. Anyway, um, and uh, and I said to the guys that was uh, they were they all had nicknames: Chaddy, Daz, uh, Yogi, Slim, Slim, Slim is a little fat boy, so his nickname was Slim, obviously. <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I told them all, I've just got a job in New Zealand. And hadn't told Mary. 
And Mary said, you didn't tell me. I said, no, I thought I'd, say, I thought I'd uh, save it for here so I can tell all the gang. And they had all, had all their girlfriends. And so over the following uh, couple of months, we got engaged and then we got married. And three weeks later, we flew out to New Zealand. So uh, a brave new world. Again. And you'd never been to New Zealand before? Hell, I, I'd, I'd been into Europe because <clears throat> mum and dad, dad been in the booze business, uh, he travelled quite a bit, so we were fortunate to be hangers-on. Uh, so I'd been into France and Germany and Belgium and places like that. Mary had never been anywhere. And I can still feel her hand uh, crushing my wrist when, when the plane took off <laughs> from Heathrow. And how old were you then? I was 24, Mary was 22. Newly yeah. married on Newly a plane. Married. Yeah, yeah. Got half got halfway there, which was Singapore, which we loved dearly. And we opted to have a two-day state stopover. Yeah. And uh, it was lovely. So we arrived in uh, in Auckland. Mm, I want to say about the last day of November or first day of December 1974. That's right. And uh you might remember the Auckland Customs passport control was a big tin shed. Yes. Remember that? Yes. So an, were they old army? Army. Yeah. I mean, Wellington was an old Air Force thing and they were terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that was it. But it was a bit of a, oh. Um, yeah. Anyway, so um, and then uh, we were picked up by this man, Bob King. He took us to his house up in the... Up in the ranges, oh, looking. Waitakere. Yes, thank you. The Waitax, the yeah. Waitax, and he had the, he had the view of everything, and he looked at his house to me and my my wife, new wife, out of terrace houses. It looked like a mansion. Bloody hell, it did. Yeah, absolutely. You could see for miles, and uh, we stayed there with him a couple of days, and then we came down to Palmy, and we were picked up and. Uh, Put into a, a, a night, about 10 o'clock at night, put into a house, uh, accommodation, let's call it, which is where we stayed for quite a while. So we didn't see it in the daylight, of course, till the daylight. I opened the curtains and went, my God, <laughs> my God, all tin rooms. Look, there's a Model T, 1922. Ah. <laughs> so many old cars and it was yeah. fantastic. And the weather was just stunning, which is not normal for Danaberg. No. But um, anyway, and then um, and then one of the guys was involved with this built building a, this this whole operation and uh, business. One of the guys and came and came and picked me up. So I left Mary there after two days walking around, uh, just acclimatizing ourselves. And he took me down the mill site, and there was this half built mill, big mill. Uh, for New Zealand, big mill, um, but no machinery uh, and, and nothing else. They're still pouring the floors. So they sent me down to the local wool store, which was a five-minute walk down there with the scouring plant. So the location of the mill was absolutely spot on because the east coast of New Zealand is one of the major sources for the crossbred wool, mm-hmm. it's the major, which is the biggest um, and, and micron type fibre uh, grown in New Zealand. Um, and so uh, we worked away there. I learned the local wool. I, I, I ended up as a blender or being familiar with raw materials. So you can mix 
a bit of this with a bit of that. You want some good length fiber. You want some there to balance it and things like that. So they put me down there for four months. They put me a skinny pom at 24 in amongst all these bloody Kiwis who some of them could take two wool hooks and pick a bale up with the hooks and walk yeah. <laughs> So they gave me hell. So I gave them hell as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that was marvellous. Did you love it? I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. One day, um, uh, Ralph was, uh, I won't say, I won't get any, no, no surnames. Ralph was a teacher. The boss was his mate. Uh, of the wool store so he, he worked there and they didn't teach inside i'm going to tell you a quick quick joke and he said i go in the smoker room there's probably 18 and 19 kiwis and me a pom the new boy and they call me the skinny pom and uh, ralph said being the right man he was a teacher he said chad eh? why are poms like piles i said i got no idea he says well, they come out, they won't go back, and they're a pain in the ass to everybody. Don't you miss that, Benta? That, no, we have it all the time. Do I, you still I, do it? I, I play I play snooker being an old fart. I play snooker on a Thursday afternoon with three old farts, so there's four old farts, and we tell jokes. And we right? laugh, and we play snooker. And, I and, love I, – I was, I'm probably 10 years younger than you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe not. No, no, I don't think I'm so. 72. I'm 66. Yeah. So I'm six years younger. But I remember working in those days and absolutely loving it. And you worked hard, but it was the morning tea and lunchtime to a young boy and the jokes and the laughter and the hilarity and all – Good natured, and yet yeah. if you said it now, you'd be a bully. But it was oh, so God. much, yeah. it was so enjoyable. You yeah. looked forward to going to work, and you missed the guys, you know, yeah. um, when you weren't at work. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, the well, camaraderie, the camaraderie yeah. of the workplace was fantastic yeah. in a wool store or wherever you were working. There was just a great camaraderie, which I loved. Well, in this mill here, which has been going since '84. Um, we have had, I think, five couples. She was working on a reeling machine. He was on a preparer. He was in a dye house. She was in bawling. And they've ended up being married. And one of that couple is Audrey and Matthew. Matthew is our plant manager. Audrey uh, no longer works here. And they've got three of the most incredible boys. And now they're becoming grandparents. And they worked in here. They got Isn't that great? Da, 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 da. And it just and that's what happened in that's what happened in the UK. In England, in England, the textile industry it was it was generational, intergenerational. Yes. It was yes. grandma did it, mom, you know. Yeah. So, worked so, at worked at mill. Yeah, it did. It was trouble to get the clogs on. It was trouble yeah. at mill. Trouble at mill. <laughs> trouble at mill. Yeah, that's they're dead right. So so anyway, so we got this this um, this mill going. Good location, scour down the road, which is essential. What does um, scour do? A scour washes the uh, the grease, the swints, and the uh, 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 elements off the fleece. Uh, which, in simple terms, Rodney, <clears throat> let's just take a like a would say a Romney um, or Corriedale. If you take a kilo of wool off a sheep, twenty five percent of it is grease. Um, 
a minuscule of lanolin, which they extract for the cosmetics industry, and uh, the rest is grease. And that grease is there to protect the animal in the elements mm. um, uh, while, uh, while it's growing. So a scour, And the wool scour takes the lanolin and the grease out. Then the wool scour takes 20 plus percent, 25 percent, possibly more on some of the coloured walls of grease. And I can't remember. Does is lanolin constitute maybe three percent of the of that okay. total weight? And they uh, they recover that through centrifuges, and it's valuable to the cosmetics industry. Mm. But, so, but yeah, but um, just thinking quickly um, back then in the in the late seventies, early eighties, I think no, in fact, I know we had eighty four million sheep. In New Zealand. Yes, that's right. Today, you are lucky to have 25 million. Amazing. Same applies in Australia. They used to have 250 million. They're down in the 70 to 80 million, I think. My brain's a little bit fuddled on that. And that, that, that's because of the alternate income streams, vineyards, forestry, returns, and things like that. And yeah. synthetics? Oh, and synthetics, bloody hell, I tell you what. If I took you back to, uh, you're testing me now, if I took you back to uh, 25, 30 years ago, the world fibre consumption was something like 55 to 60% cotton, which we don't go near, of course, 55 to 60 cotton, something like, I want to say 25% synthetic, and that leaves you 80%. Sorry, 20%, that's 80%. 20% for all other fibres. So that's silk. Um, it's all those other different natural fibres. Um, mohair, uh, wool. Wool constituted like 5% of the world fibre consumption. Today, that figure of cotton to synthetic Synthetic is the biggest. Mm. But at the same time, Rodney, think about this. From those days, the world has now got 7.8 billion people. Yes. And that's, you know, that's a, that's a problem and an issue of things yeah. like that. And just keeping them supplied and fed and everything else, you know, it's difficult. Mm. So, so you're working in the Danavirk mill. Yep. And you're working... Uh, what was your job there? You were throwing these bales around with these big guys. Uh, well, that was at the wool store while that, while, yeah. that, whilst oh, I while the mill was getting ready, yes. Yeah. Then I went back up to the mill and the mill was commissioned. I looked after the sales uh, or installation of the sales. I looked after the raw materials. I looked after the finished goods and um, an early stage processing, which is blending and carding. So that was my brief, that we imported, uh, there was probably, there was eight of us imported from uh, the UK, and a few, quite a few was relatively young, and uh, the boy that put it all together, Bob King, he was he was very focused on getting young people, might be short on experience in places, but you've got some longevity rather than the yes. 60-year-olds or 55-year-olds who are going to retire in 10 years. You and they're, you're adaptable when you're young. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so that's what I did in there. And uh, it was commissioned, and I, I was commissioned to hold a commission for Warren Freer. 
Warren, wow. Warren, Warren Freer walked into the mill and, and all, all, all the big wigs. Do you know we have big wigs in Danimark? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're little big wigs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I had to hold the plaque, uh, brass brass plaque, for um, Warren Freer to uh, take the cur- curtain up. I now pronounce this mill commissioned and all that kind of stuff. So that was the that was June seventy five. Yeah, never forget that. Um, so and off we go. We started, and it was it was a carpet yarn spinning mill. But the company that we are today was became a customer of um, that mill, our mill, New Zealand Wool Spinners, as it was called, um, quite quickly. And that was a group of Perrindale farmers, which brings me to the origin of this business here. So they were Perrindale growers. Oh, they were, they were described this way: four farmers and a businessman. Okay, ah. <laughs> four farmers and a businessman. I'm not going to say any names. The yeah. businessman was a share broker, uh, finance out of Wellington. Yeah, the other four were farmers. In other words, the other four who were farmers weren't really businessmen. No, they were <laughs> farmers. Know? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, and um, I learned a lot about the Perrinel. But I used to look after their um, their uh, their their work. Uh, because the carpet mill had a, an ability to spin certain, there's a lot of textiles, Rodney. It's called a count. A count is the thickness of a yarn. The, there's a yarn. There's yeah. some yarn there. A count is the thickness of a yarn. Um, anyway, um, so uh, they fitted it into our capabilities. So I looked after what they did. And they were four, four farmers and a, and a, and a businessman who wanted to see the added value instead of the bales of wool just going off the end of the farm to the auction, they wanted to get the added value. So they were talking added value years before Mike, Mars, Mike Moore started talking yes. about it. And, and it, oh, hang on, my phone. Uh, it's business. That's my daughter. Yeah, <laughs> my daughter. Um, and um, where was I? You were saying about adding value with the four farmers and the businessmen. Yeah. So for four years, we continued making um, um, the yarn using the Perrindale wool. We made some carpet yarn for them, made some hand-knitting yarns. And and from the fifth year, um, they said to me, Peter, do you want to come and work with us? Um, It's Perrindale Marketing, very small company. The, the mill I was working at, we employed 120. We were one of the biggest employers in Danaberg. Yes. I said that. 120-odd people. There was the Friesian Works, the hospital, and us were the three biggest employers. Um, so I joined this little company, Perrindale Marketing, and um, Dave, uh, David, yeah, David. David uh, bought um, a couple of machines, bowling machines, and I stripped those and rebuilt them. We got those going. And, uh, and that business went from a pretty low base. It went times two, times two, times two, times two to be a decent, uh, not bad for a little, for uh, uh, 10 employees. Where um, was it based? Based in Danaberg. And, uh, but at that point, uh, the board um, said, we're going to build our own mill, which is here. This is, this is what still stands today. Mm-hmm. So they had some um, foresight, you might, not foresight, but, you know, the, in, to improve the lot, isn't it a true? Isn't it a truism, Rodney? Um, the primary producer 
is generally the person, the people who struggle the most to get a decent return. They get what's left. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Yeah. And it's terrible to witness. It is so shocking to witness that all the, all the sweat and tears and effort goes in and there's all these fancy pants flipping the ticket and bureaucrats telling you what you can and can't do and then the farmer gets what's left. Um, yes. But in a way, that's almost another story because I've it come is. to a con- I've come to a conclusion after the COVID experience that government and bureaucrats don't like independence, and you know they don't like actual families and farmers because they're the definition of independence or churches, and so it's all going. So we can all become in a funny way, more and more useless because farming and business people and families, they're strong and they're strong without government. But I just see that happening everywhere I look, that loss of strength and independence, just the independence that you had as a young person to get on a plane and come to New Zealand and do what was needed to get a mill up and running and to help out and to become a part of it. It's that it's that independence that I feel as though has been washed out of us. Um, and that's why I love your story because we, it, you just got on and did it. So you're running this Perindale mill. I want to get back to that. The farmers are trying to capture some of the added value by getting into, I guess, what you'd call the manufacturing part of it. Then yeah. what happened? Well, uh, that uh, that commenced. Um, I was going to say something to you there in regard to what you were just talking about. Damn it! I told you my focus is. Uh, I was going to say something. No, it's gone. Um, so we started. Uh, the mill was commissioned in 84. Um, we found, um, or David, the uh, businessman, managing director. No, no. He, okay. Managing director, the, the boy who pushed for this to happen. Um, we found an Irishman um, in Ireland, surprisingly, who was recommended to us by a lot There's of... There's a lot of them, I hear. A lot, lot of Irish in Australia and New Zealand yeah. and, and elsewhere in the world. And, and again, um, uh, that was the heart of the textile industry of any consequence was around Belfast. And um, they uh, secured a man called Ian Kelly, uh, who everyone calls Mr. Kelly. <laughs> I don't. Um, um, and he arrived... And the equipment that David had purchased <clears throat> arrived and there was probably, I'm going to say, seven or eight 20-foot containers of equipment out of Europe, all second-hand. Little, little business is, hasn't got the funds to start buying brand-new uh, mm-hmm. carding machines. A carding machine today is probably worth $1.4 or something like that. Wow. Anyway, anyway, in 84, and we all stood there with Ian. The buildings were all here. We all stood there with Ian outside, say all. There was probably five of us. And uh, we opened the containers and he stood there and he started unloading it. And he said, uh, spinning frame, a gilling machine, um, carding machine. And, and he split it all down. Then he then he built the whole lot. He built the, built all the machinery. Very intelligent boy. Very, very clever. And he's still with us. He's just turned 79 any minute now. Um, wow. So he's the... He's the key, is what I'd say, really, with his knowledge, etc. He's uh, he's one out of the box. Yeah, he really is. So we were fortunate to get him. 
and uh, he, we got the we got the mill going that following year or later that year and um, then it got into difficulty just before you get into the difficulty peter <clears throat> so i'm talking to peter chatterton you're on real talk with rodney hyde we're having some real talk about the wool industry and manufacturing and we've just set up a mill whereabouts is your mill our mill is in the industrial area called onikawa of napier napier um, so what's happening is farmers have got the sheep they're shearing the sheep the wool goes off to a wool scourer i'm picking peter yes, yes. and they take out the grease and the lanolin and then you get the wool yes and out of your factory pops what out of our factory, the pops what is known as a yarn, and we make yarns. Um, we have a, we call ourselves a specialty, a specialty spinner, a boutique spinner. We have a, we have a massive count range, yarn thickness range, from very fine to very thick, um, and we make fancy yarns. We use a, a micro wool micron range from 15.6 micron out of Taze, Tasmania, on a commission basis for that customer, to 39 micron. Wow. So most and, massive. And you dye it as well? We have our own dye house, yeah. And, and, and so if I go and buy some wool at the shop, yes, it could be your wool? If you buy wool from a shop, um, it could be our wool we process we, we supply a number of uh, yarn distributors um in new zealand and we have our skein shop and uh, um same into australia so we spin but i hadn't finished there rodney yes you will find that so we use a massive range of wools through the merino uh, through merino to the halfbreds to the corridales to the polworths to the crossbreds then we had silk Alpaca, mohair, possum, not as much cashmere these days, um, but it's all those specialty fibres. So that puts us in a, a kind of a unique, unique position. Mm. Rodney, I'll just quickly say, when I arrived, when we arrived in New Zealand in 74, there was Alliance Textiles and Feltex. There was probably five, six worsted spinning mills, big mills in Dunedin, which was one of the centres for textiles, in Auckland, and then scattered around the country, other places. We're the last sole remaining worsted spinner in New Zealand, apart from a little kind of what I call a craft mill, which is quite small, down in the South Island. We're the last. Why have they all gone? Well, that leads me into a question I'm going to ask you. Okay, we got ourselves going '84. What else happened in '84 on the political? scene oh i remember it well you do he came he came back from seoul from the apec summit mm -hmm. and stood on and the, he i'm talking about is david longy mm -hmm. and he stood on primetime television he said we're going to show the world what a free economy is like remember that mm -hmm. i know you remember that and uh, of course that started to cause lots of industries and businesses to disappear because mm. the whole world, you know, 84 was the year when China was given a green light, if you want to call it like that, to expand its exporting. That's my opinion anyway. Yeah, and um, all, the, all the barriers, all the protective barriers oh, went yeah. overnight. 
Yeah, they went overnight. And, Interest uh, rates through the roof. Yeah, we were told by uh, our local MPs, who should remain nameless, that, uh, sorry, tough, get used to it. This is what we're doing. They missed now, a Jeff, Jeff Braybrook. Oh, and and one of your compatriots in Maybe the I. National Party. Not Nash. He's, he's on your, uh, he's with, with, with you guys. He's the, he's the mayor of Wanganui. Oh, Michael Laws. Thank you, Michael Laws. Yeah. I went to see Michael and he said, sorry, Peter, that, that's, the tr- that's the path we're following. And we used to discuss when that happened and this, the, the dismantling of uh, duties and things like that in our trade on a, on a, a lot. And uh, the boys would say, yeah, the, worm, the wheel will turn. And, of course, the wheel has turned, but it's taken it 36 years. Mm. So I'm not going to see the wheel turn again, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Neither. So you, where did, when we're getting our wool now, it's gone off, it's come from another mill. Um, um, Offshore. Our no. wool goes, where's. Where, no, well, where, think about that. The, 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 uh, the the wool the wool exports were or still are a considerable um, contribution to overseas funds. Mm-hmm. So back in the day, in two thousand, it was somewhere in the one point three one point four billion export funds, something like that. And today, I'm gonna I'll get shot down for this. I should be careful what I say. Maybe a few years back now. Um, it would have dropped to three quarters of a million. Oh, sorry, seven hundred and three quarters of a billion. Yeah. Seven seven fifty billion. And that's because we have so many less sheep. Less, so many less sheep. Uh, so much less manufacturing. Um, the 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 drive the the race to China assisted China immensely through greed. So everyone's mm. cheap. I want to make more profit. Blah blah blah. And now I I've heard in the last couple of years, if not the three years, I've heard some Labour uh, MPs start to say, "Wouldn't it be good to have some more manufacturing here?" And I say, "Damn <laughs> <early> days, damn <laughs> days." So so there's there's that factor. So uh, uh, no, there is there's a lot. We opened this mill in '84. China started coming out of itself. With the assistance of the Kiwis, the Brits, all the first developed, they all went there to to get their pound of flesh of profit or less costs. Um, but it, it destroyed the textile industry and a lot of other industries. Mm. It minimalised them. It made them reduce. And, and the worm is turning. The wheel is turning, should I say now. But it's going to be a long time. I can't see it ever getting back there. China, they say owns 80% of the garment supplies of the world. My goodness. Come out of there, and one hell of a lot of that would be synthetic, yeah. And, of course, now people are looking at the geopolitics of it and saying we're in a second Cold War, but now with China. Yes, yes. And yet it's a different Cold War in the sense that whereas the former Soviet Union was a separate economy and separate politically, and you didn't have Russians everywhere. Now the economies are integrated, and 
there are Chinese people everywhere, some of whom could be spies, many of whom could be spies. We could have, no, we could have many spies in the West. And you're looking at China and you're thinking, well, what does happen if they decide to take Taiwan? Yeah. Because yeah. our economies are so integrated. It's not yeah. like yeah. it's a very, very and of course, we thought, I thought. And I mean, I've made more mistakes than most people. I thought that by having trade with China, China would open up and become a liberal democracy like us over time. And what I've discovered is that we have become a tyrannical dictatorship like China. You yeah. know, we had disinformation and... Yeah. And lockdowns and all that become an accepted and acceptable government policy. And funnily enough, we've become more like China than they've become like us. It's a peculiar, it's a peculiar scenario that we find ourselves in. And I mean, um, I guess we bought a lot of nonsense back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, uh, as I said, in 84, when the, the, this started, in 84, we started this mill with 40 people. Um, I think about right, 40. And uh, over the following probably three or four years, that's when you saw the increasing volumes of Chinese imports, including yarn. And um, we moved from 40 staff we went up to a two-shift operation, um, and by early 90s, we were a three-shift operation producing a quarter of a million tonnes. Yeah. But then, but then that's, that was pretty decent size for New Zealand, but then those tariffs that were phased out and then China getting its act together more, it was, uh, it was, like, it was like floating a... Like floating a business on the stock exchange when there's a stock market crash happening, yeah. kind of, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's so difficult, um, in a very swift space of time. Um, and I, we were competing, I was we were competing with people with, with Chinese yarn, and they were offering their yarn in the Auckland or anywhere in New Zealand and in Australia, we used to export 30 odd percent to Oz, and um, where they're quoting. The price that we pay for our raw material. Oh my goodness! You know, and that's what happened. And that's what happened all over the place. Today, we employ twenty-five people. Well, we employ thirty-two if we bring the whole team, and we're reasonably more content and happy. We did. We we had eighty-five staff back in. If you want to call it a heyday, we had to dispose of the equipment. Well, because of what happened in in China coming on board. The world was awash with second-hand textile equipment. You couldn't give it away. We sold some. We sold some equipment to Bangladesh, of all places. <laughs> and the 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 return we got for the equipment was less than the cost of the containers shipping price cost to Bangladesh. Wow. And then went and, and politicians never think about things like this. And you know they have that. Anyway, we won't go, go, won't get political. What is but so say? you you have been up against it day one. Uh, yeah, being tough. 
spent up. And so every year you are seriously fighting to survive. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's marginal, you might say. We've had the good years. We've had the bad years. We've had some quite poor years. Um, the, with the introduction or advent of skeins, I'm going to say here, should I say here publicly, <clears throat> if, Ska- if we hadn't followed the path of skeins with Marie uh, being at the helm, I doubt we'd be here today. My goodness. Now, this is Marie Buskey, who I have met uh, through Reality Check Radio. She's one of the great hosts. She's just a force of nature, such a wonderful, wonderful woman, who, through marriage, I can say is sort of a cousin of mine. I proudly claim her. And you were saying, Peter, that 30-odd years ago, she walked into your office and took over. No, no, no. No. Well, if she'd had her way, she probably would have. <laughs> I wonder if she's listening right now. <laughs> no, uh, we sat down and chatted, and I said, boy, I think we could do something here. And uh, so she joined the team, and uh, it's progressed forward since then. Do and you- this is skeins.com, this is dot com. Yeah, it is. And that's an online, online. business where I can buy what? You could buy. Uh, you go and look at the site. You can buy any of those products that are on there. There's some rugs. There's uh, accessories. Mostly yarns. Obviously, that's what we do. And they all. We also have a retail shop, a good size retail shop down Tarradale Road, in Napier, which the locals will all know about. I hope. And um, yes, it was uh, because it just got tighter and tighter. And now, now from last August, uh, I've got to tell you, Rodney. August to me was the first time I heard that horrible word inflation start to rear its head. Yes. Things have tightened up and tightened up yes. quite dramatically. And we, we we all live in the same thing, Rodney. We all know cost of living. We've at the same time in five years, we've had a forced increase, government forced increase of minimum wages. We pay the starting rate of the living wage, but they force that up as well. Oh, that's sorry, I won't say that. That follows the increase of the minimum wage has been has been increased by somewhere like thirty eight percent. My goodness, in five years. And just to get the skeins that would be a craft market, would it? Uh, yeah, um, um, hobby craft. Yeah, craft. And market. so these are people who are very, very conscious of quality and aren't rushing off to buy something from China or mass manufactured. They like to know <clears throat> that what they're knitting with is the real deal. Well, uh, look, let me just picture this for you. So we were, we were locked down in, in March 2020, am I right? Yeah. And we came back to work on like the first week of May or late April. We're locked down. And prior to that lockdown, the advent of COVID, the market was average, a bit difficult for the previous couple of years. Um, And within two months of our return to work in May 2020, we saw more orders going forward than we've ever seen in our lives. We have have a two-month processing time lead time 
Um, and we've got a capacity of that. All of a sudden, the capacity is that, and every month is full. We were quoting 12 months out for supply. Because everyone was locked down. A lot of okay. people, ladies, because they, 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 it's 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 a craft. It's a hobby. It's a the, you watch the ladies. They can sit there and watch TV or listen to something, and they don't even look at what they're doing. No, you know what I mean, and and it is, and um, and it's got a it's got a it's got a persona of uh, old grey people like me, but that's not the truth. Uh, yes, there's plenty of those, but there are a lot, a lot, lot of new young. 25, 28, 30, to the, the, those younger people, 30s, 40s, uh, in coming into uh, into it. But it's it's all a shadow of its former self. Is that post-COVID boom, is it dwindling away or is it staying? No, it dwindled with inflation. Or it start, don't say dwindle. Uh, it started to show signs. And that's because people are feeling the pinch. Because the, the the discretionary spending isn't there, mm. so it's a simple. So as well. what you're saying is the interest is there, yeah. The potential demand is there. We're yeah. just going through this economic uh, tightening, so people are having to count their pennies, and one of the first things to go is crafts. Yeah, mm. I, I, and 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 some of the other social things. I went to town. Um, I don't often go into Napier City, and it's only 10, 15 minutes down there because I'm out of Taradale. Um, but I went in yesterday morning between football games of Grandis to get to do something, and I said to myself, I'd been seeing it. I said, good grief, look at this. The town's deserted. Well, it isn't deserted, but it's half the busyness that it's normally got. And I don't know whether that's just something similar. People are just uh, exactly watching their pennies. Mm. And isn't it interesting that that COVID had that effect because people are getting into baking bread, doing a yep. garden, yep. Um, knitting, um, going back to how our, well, yours and my parents lived, yes. um, that their grandparents lived, um, and appreciating it and valuing it. Because there was that terrible feeling with your family and the lockdowns of a vulnerability, wasn't there? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I I learned through that lockdown that I needed to be more resilient and more self-sufficient. And I needed to build up a, a local community because I couldn't rely on government to leave me alone, actually, I guess oh. I'd say. Well, with, with the actions that uh, that she took, um, you should say it like that, um, your description at the start of our conversation about the impacts of that on people um, and doesn't fit with the be kind mantra. No. At all. No, but hypocrisy and double standards uh, is... is um, all part and puzzle. I've got to tell you a funny story of mine. Do you remember Tom Scott, the yes. cartoonist? And he's he's a very, very funny man. He's very, very funny um, in person. And um, I met him when I first went into Parliament in 1996, and I was so excited to meet Tom Scott like I was everyone else. And 
I had discovered that a minister was um, showing signs of hypocrisy and what he was about. Uh-huh. And I raised this with Tom Scott, being a new person in Parliament, being completely naive. And I pointed this out, and he said to me, oh, Rodney, he says, you know what they say about politics, don't you? And I said, no. He says, well, it's fine to have double standards as long as they're high enough. <laughs> Which is so bloody funny. And, <laughs> <laughs> I just say, I, I, it's not often you get a joke that 30 years later you're still laughing about, but yeah, that's well, one of them. Exactly, exactly. It's fine to have double standards as long as they're high enough. And, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the be kind is a great double standard, isn't it? Oh, it's just God. a bit of marketing bump. But um, what's the – are you looking forward – I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Because there you go. You're taking New Zealand product, well, which is a not just a marginal New Zealand product. It's the real deal. It's what we do. And you're making something valuable out of it, which the world cries out for. Yes. And you think that you would be valued by our political and government class because you employ people, you give their life meaning and wages, and you make money for your business, your town, your employees downstream. And yet you look at it, and for ever since you started, ever since you started, the uh, government has been making life extremely difficult for you. Well, if I if I if I try and be fair to <clears throat> excuse me to a point, Rodney, if I go back to the uh, to the eighties, we had the EMDTI Export Market Development Tax Incentives and all those other things, um, but that system didn't last too long because. Uh, it transpired that a lot of people were not playing the game because they were uh, they were um, what's the word? Um, so so you, you so you had a grant you had to achieve. I can't think of the name now. A target or you had to you had to achieve this turnover uh, yeah. on exports and things like that. I think there was some skullduggery went on there with people or with the businesses, so it, it was stopped. And apart from that. Um, we've been left to our own devices. Well, you'd be one thing if you'd been left to your own devices, but it's been made doubly tricky, you know, doubly yeah. hard. And just every step of the way with wage hikes, just rules, regulations, and you must feel as though you're trudging uphill. But on the bright spot, there is this now great interest and self-sufficiency and quality and things that are going to last and making something for the home or for yourself or for your kids that you've made yourself and will last, won't wear out. Yeah. And we can find out about that from skeins.com, S-K-E-I-N-Z.com, help a great uh, Kiwi business. And tell me this, Peter, 
You must have had a family here. We've got uh, two daughters, Sarah and Holly, and four grandchildren. And <clears throat> and if I took you back 11 years ago now, because I say this every year just about, if you'd have, if somebody had said to me 11 years ago, in the next four years you'll have four grandchildren, I'd have said, get out of here. And we've got a, now we've got a 10, 9, 8, 7. Isn't that wonderful? Fantastic, and they're great. Yeah. And they live nearby. Yeah, well, they do. Uh, one of our families, Sarah and Tim, the the elder the elder couple, uh, they were IT. They lived in London. They did all these things, but they came back to Napier. Lovely family. So two are down that way, and two are that way. And in two days' time, we've got them all round at our place for a birthday party. So that's great. Yeah, and it's not Halifax. It's Napier. <laughs> No big chimneys here. No. <laughs> so uh, so there we go. Are you optimistic for the business, Peter? You must be an optimistic person. Um, well, my wife tells me to stop being so pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're dealing with the numbers, I guess. I, I, I am a bit of a I am a bit of a bit of a stress monkey. And um my dad told my brother and I when we were teenagers, man know thyself. And I've quoted that to my family and my children, my grandies as well. And you need to have self-awareness so uh, you recognise where you're at. A lot of people mm. don't have that. So, mm. yeah, but well, otherwise, we we will, Ian Kelly, the Irishman, he'd, he'd say this. He'd say, we'll fight them in the spinning frames, <laughs> fight them in the card, but we'll never resist or we'll never, <laughs> never give up. Isn't that great? <laughs> so, yeah. And so... You're there with a the business, employing people, making this yarn. We can buy your yarn and make uh, beautiful crafts, beautiful art, functional, wearable things. And there you are, having come to New Zealand in 1974 and built a business and had a family, and then you are with grandchildren. It must be... An amazing reflection. Paradise. And you could have never left Halifax. Oh, we thought about that. I used to think about that a lot. The the trade in Halifax. It just just the, the environment. We live we lived in Danavit, we live in Napier. It's beautiful. Yes. Uh, there's no traffic jams. It's not Auckland. You're in Wanaka, I gather. Uh Arrowtown. Oh, Arrowtown. Wonderful, mm. beautiful little place. Beautiful you customers in there. Yeah. yeah. So, so it is. I've got. I must say, uh, Rodney. Um, so there's uh, there's Ian Kelly, technical, uh, Brendan uh, Jackson, finance, uh, etc. Computers and all those things. Myself, sales, etc. Then we have um, uh, Marie's a shareholder. Uh, second largest customers a shareholder. Then we have shareholders uh, that uh, we organise, and that's our team management team. Matthew, Yvonne, Esam. Um, so we've got succession going on, and all that counts to me is that this place keeps going. Yes. Yes. I guess. How wonderful. What a great place to end. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time, Peter. Good luck with your business. We'll be all checking out your webpage. You're an inspiration. It is that entrepreneurial spirit and that desire to make things and produce things, and it was – was it Ian Kelly, the Irishman? I yes. might have people mixed up who Ian got Kelly, that the Irishman. got that machinery out of those containers. 
Yes. And built it. Yes. And it, at age 79, he's still there working it. Yes. yes. Isn't that wonderful? And we've had lots of laughs, I tell you. <laughs> I bet you have. I bet you have. Yeah. Peter, it's a pleasure. I'm talking to Peter Chatterton. Uh, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a great Real Talk with Peter. It's a wonderful, wonderful life. Uh, he's got the business Design Spun Limited, and you can go and see what he produces at skeins.com, S-K-E-I-N-Z.com. He was a POM, a skinny POM, came to New Zealand with his new wife in 1974 and built a life and built a factory and is still going when virtually everyone else isn't. And isn't that a story? And isn't that sad? But we're so lucky to have uh, Peter and the farmers still going against all odds. You're on Reality Check Radio. Send us a text, 2057. Uh, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.